Hello. My name is John Smetanka, and the name of our program is With Respect. Today's guest in With Respect is Chris O'Connor. Chris is an assistant United States attorney for the Western District of Michigan, located uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, but that district covers all of the western side of the lower peninsula of Michigan and all of the upper peninsula. It's a big district. And we're going to be talking about something which is a very topical problem or series of problems uh, which come with one of the great blessings that we have. We have the blessing of the Internet and computers and cell phones, and we have problems like with anything in life you get the good, you get the bad. We're going to be talking about the different kinds of problems that we have and that people have to be aware of. So, Chris O'Connor, with respect. Chris, how are you today? I'm doing very well, John. Thank you. Good, good. Well, Chris, um, everybody in our show starts off with the same question. Where are you from originally? John, I grew up on the east side of the state. I was born and raised uh, in the Port Huron area and uh, spent uh, all my life there until I uh, went, went off to college at Albion College. And what happened from there? Well, I uh, really enjoyed my time at Albion, but uh, knew I needed to move on and, and uh, go do something with my life after graduation uh, from Albion with a political science degree, and uh, I decided to go to law school. And uh, from Albion, I went directly to uh, Case Western Reserve University Law School in Cleveland and spent three years there and uh, decided to start practicing law in private practice in, in the city of Chicago. Whereabouts? Well, I worked at uh, a big firm in town called Jenner and Block. Uh, it was a, a primarily a litigation firm uh, at the time, although it has since built built up a corporate practice. But I was a litigator. Uh, I went to Jenner and Block to try cases, and uh, in particular, work uh, as much as I could on pro bono cases, uh, which is one of the areas that Jenner takes a lot of pride in. They have uh, consistently since uh, the 1950s, has done a, a lot of pro bono work uh, for uh, indigent uh, criminal defendants and nonprofit organizations, uh, both in, in Cook County and, and elsewhere in Why? Illinois. And uh, Well, number one, we should do it as lawyers. Uh, we need to do pro bono work. There are a lot of people in this country that can't afford an attorney uh, or can barely afford an attorney, and they have serious legal issues, uh, particularly with respect to uh, indigent uh, criminal defendants who uh, need and deserve a, a competent defense attorney to help them through the process, uh, but also in, in corporate transactions and nonprofit organizations, uh, startup companies that don't have uh, enough money to, to afford attorneys. Uh, they need help getting themselves off the ground and protecting themselves and their assets and uh, providing opportunities for others. And so, it's a calling uh, of our profession, and every attorney should do pro bono work throughout their career. Um, but it's also really gratifying work. Uh, you, you do well and, and you help others, uh, but it's also a great learning experience for you, especially as a young attorney uh, coming out of law school. Um, you know, you learn how to practice law once you graduate from law school. Uh, at least that was the case uh, back when I graduated law school uh, about 21 years ago now. And, uh, and so you learn how to be a, a good lawyer by practicing. And one of the ways you can do that is uh, through uh, pro bono representation. And I had the great fortune and wonderful experience. In the first two years out of law school, I actually had the opportunity to uh, second chair uh, two murder trials uh, with very experienced lead counsel. And I learned so much in that process in my first two years out of law school. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I went to General Block. 
You know, it's interesting. A little sidelight, personal sidelight. Um, Jenner, uh, the Jenner of Jenner and Block is Bert Jenner, uh, Albert Jenner, and very famous trial lawyer back in uh, in the 20th century, the early and on through the middle of the 20th century. Um, what uh, a little known fact is, uh, it's apoc- maybe apocryphal, but I but I met Bert and and uh, he confirmed it. He started his practice in my grandfather's law firm. And uh, so I remember hearing about that. And so I, I met him one day, and I, uh, and I said, say, is this really true? <clears throat> he said, yep, sure is. Uh, knew my grandfather, had great respect for him, and that was, that was, uh, that was pretty rewarding to, to hear that. Um, now, so when you try a case, what does that mean? I mean, what's it, why is that different than, say, oh, Getting emerging two corporations or handling a real estate transaction. What what is the difference? Uh, the you know kind of the zeitgeist here. You've already talked about doing the pro bono part, but what about this litigation word that you use? Sure. So you know I think most people when they think of an attorney, uh, they think of their experiences watching uh, courtroom dramas on television, right? And that's uh, and that's really what trying a case is all about. Uh, you have two parties. There's a dispute. Uh, if it's a civil case, you have a plaintiff and a defendant. Uh, the plaintiff brings uh, a claim or a complaint. Uh, they uh, present that issue to a court, and if it doesn't get resolved out of court with a settlement, uh, then uh, you can head to a trial. And and the litigation part encompasses, of course, all of that process, uh, working through the, the legal issues, the the evidence, what we call discovery, uh, settlement negotiations, perhaps some mediation um, before going to trial before a judge or a jury. And so that's that's the part of the law that really excited me when I was in law school. And uh, with all due respect to my uh, my friends who pursued the transactional side of the practice of law uh, and corporate practice, uh, that just wasn't for me. So I wanted to uh, wanted to 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 get into the courtroom and I, and I wanted to litigate uh, matters and try to help my clients uh, with their problems, whether it's um, uh, litigating against another party or defending against litigation brought by another party. I find that uh, to be uh, the absolute best part of practicing law. So how did you end up in Michigan, back in Michigan, because you started off in the Port Huron area, and now you're back in Michigan. What was the story there? Well, partly family. My family uh, all stayed here in Michigan, and so I wanted to get back to family, although I really enjoyed uh, my time in Chicago, uh, and I really enjoyed uh, my litigation practice at Jenner. Uh, I knew really, even before law school, that at some point in my career, I wanted to uh, work at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I knew that going back to an internship that I uh, that I had the fortune to to uh, to do when I was at Albion. Uh, I was in the program there called the Gerald Ford Institute for Public Service, and as part of my internship experience, I worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Detroit, and I spent a summer in Detroit watching all of those great lawyers. And and working with them and going to court, going to federal court in Detroit, and it was a phenomenal experience, uh, unpaid of course, but <laughs> that that was one of the most invaluable experiences uh, of my life, and it it planted the seed, John, and I knew at some point that I wanted to transition uh, both back to Michigan and work for uh, the United States Attorney's Office, and an opening. Uh, was announced in Grand Rapids, and uh, and that's when I jumped in 2007. You know, it's ironic because uh, last evening I was uh, on, a, on a virtual conference uh, session with a group of alumni and alumnae and uh, students at my old law school, and the, the topic was, we were all just, it was a conference, we had breakout rooms and that sort of thing, talking to the young students about what is it like to practice law? How do you find your, your niche? How do you find your passion? Um, what do you do to get your name out if you're in a private practice situation? How, so on. And it was fascinating because the three uh, attorneys, myself and two others who were talking uh, to these um, younger folks, 
uh, all came up with the same thing. That is internships, internships again and again. Find any place that you can go to get some experience in the real world of the practice of law. And uh, it, it resonates. It, you, you, young students don't uh, completely appreciate how much you need to learn from the day you leave law school. My father used to say that a lawyer um, begins to be a lawyer only after he becomes uh He's sworn in. He actually starts to work on people's problems. When you're in law school, you don't you learn where the law is. Not you don't you can't possibly memorize or know all the law that there is. So it's interesting. Absolutely, John. I totally agree with that. And and between my unpaid internship at the U.S. Attorney in Detroit and an unpaid uh, summer uh, externship with a federal judge, uh, Judge uh, Solomon Oliver in Cleveland. Uh, those were really two of the best experiences that I had that told me I need to practice in federal court and I really should be a federal prosecutor someday. All right. Let's talk about when you got to the U.S. Attorney's Office in uh, the Western District of Michigan, what did you find? What, what are the areas that you got into and how did you get into the area we're going to be talking about today, which is computers and the Internet? Sure. Well, in most U.S. attorney's offices, when you first join the office, you typically uh, start working uh, in, uh, in violent crime. And so a lot of my cases early in my career at the U.S. attorney's office here um, had, uh, you know, firearm cases, illegal possession of firearms, um, uh, drug trafficking, uh, bank robberies, the sort of general crimes that, uh, that, that's charged on the federal level in some cases. And so after uh, several years of doing that, uh, working through our, our different sections in the office, uh, there was an opportunity to uh, move over to our financial fraud section. And uh, that section in the office, really in the last uh, eight years or so, has, has grown in numbers because of the, the growing problems and threats that we see uh, in our community. You know, it used to be that uh, there were a lot of bank robberies because that was the easiest way. Uh, to get some fast cash, right? Why do you mm-hmm. rob the banks? Well, that's where the money's at, right? Yep. Well, we're seeing a modern day uh, a form of bank robbery now using the internet. Um, and what we noticed is that the, the significant rise in cyber crime uh, required additional resources in our office uh, to fight cyber crime and other forms of financial fraud. And so that's how I ended up moving over into the fraud section. Uh, and I've been doing that work for, for many years now. And uh, what we've seen really just in the last couple of years is a pretty significant uh, explosion, really, in the amount of cyber-related crime, crime that's committed using the Internet. And what we noticed uh, looking at FBI data over the last couple of years, you know, the complaints that are coming in from our community, and that's individuals and businesses, as well as governments, uh, state and local governments, uh, there's a significant increase in reporting of, of cybercrime. Uh, and last year in 2020, there was a 70% increase in, in reports to the FBI and a, a almost 20% increase in loss in 2020 alone and just reported to the FBI. And we know a lot of crime is not reported uh, to the FBI. But just in 2020, reported the FBI was more than $4 billion with a B in losses uh, just due to cybercrime. You know, in the state of Michigan, uh, we had over 12,000 complaints of cyber-related crime just in 2020. And a big part of that that we're seeing in, in the last few years is a significant increase in the use of email and email schemes to defraud people and, and businesses uh, out of uh, a lot of money. Um, just last year alone, it was almost $2 billion in losses through what we call business email compromise schemes. So it's a growing problem, uh, and not to mention ransomware, uh, which we've probably all seen in the news quite a bit more this year than we have uh, in the last several years. There's been a, a, a spike in ransomware attacks, uh, both on individuals, but also on our critical infrastructure and in our businesses, like the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack from earlier this year. Well, we're going to be talking about each of those areas um, as as you've mentioned them: the uh, internet 
based type of crimes. Uh, and ransomware, of course, is, is a big one now that we're finding out about. But we're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Chris O'Connor, Assistant United States Attorney for the Western District of Michigan, who specializes in Internet frauds, Internet cases that uh, of varying kinds, and we're going to be talking about all the different sorts of things that people do to get somebody else's money they don't deserve. Uh, this is John Smetankaran with respect, and we will be right back. back on with respect with Chris O'Connor. Chris is an assistant U.S. attorney for the Western District of Michigan who specializes in working that uh, against people who are cheating and uh, thieving and, and hurting other people through the use of the internet. This is John Smetanka. So Chris, when we broke, you started to list the varying kinds of problems that are out there that, that uh, where the the internet is now a gun pointed at people's head, as well as a a way of uh, tapping into the immense amount of knowledge that uh, mankind has accumulated over the centuries, the millennia, and you can use it for good. But there's also people out there who want to use it for ill. Um, why don't you pick out one area that to start with, and uh, let's let's talk about it. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the Internet has given us uh, so many new opportunities. Uh, we have uh, gained incredible efficiencies in how we do business and how we communicate with each other, uh, whether it's through social media or we do our banking. A lot of us do banking online. We check our uh, investment accounts online. There's a lot that we do these days. In fact, most of what we do, I would say, touches the Internet at some point, including what they call the Internet of Things. Right. So if you have a uh, if you have a smart thermostat in your house uh, that you can turn your heat up and down uh, through your smartphone, uh, that's an Internet connection. That's another portal uh, that you're potentially allowing somebody into your uh, Internet connection. And so, you know, with all of this, this great development and all the efficiencies we have, it's created a lot of opportunities for criminals to exploit all of that information that we post online. And so, you know, one of the main things that uh, we see uh, uh, every day and that we fight all of the time is something just called identity theft, right? And identity theft takes a lot of different forms, um, but essentially it's just the use of some of your personally identifiable information, your social security number, your name with your date of birth, uh, something that's unique to you, your driver's license number, um, and a lot of this information, unfortunately, is available on the Internet, and it's made available because we've provided that information. Um, we do it knowingly and intentionally and sometimes unintentionally. But even when we're very careful and we provide this information on the Internet or to our to the retailers that collect this information from us, there are all sorts of opportunities for criminal actors to gain this information illegally. You know, they can hack into the business that you provided the information to. Um, they, uh, they can actually, nowadays what we're seeing is uh, there are people on the dark net that are offering to try to gain people's uh, personally identifiable information uh, by trying to send you uh, messages to your email or text messages to your phone to trick you into providing that information. And then they sell that information in some cases to other criminal actors. And those criminal actors then use your uh, identity to commit all sorts of crimes. Um, and, and very simply, it could be taking a loan out in your name, using your identity, uh, using an online loan system and getting access to those funds. Uh, they're not your funds, but they're a bank or credit union or some other lending agency who thinks that you borrowed money from them. Uh, and the money's actually going to a criminal enterprise. 
and they're taking that money and uh, and using it sometimes to finance other illegal activity. And then all of a sudden you get a phone call uh, from that creditor uh, who's asking for their money back because you haven't made payments on your loan. And so that's a very simple form of identity theft that a lot of a lot of people, unfortunately, have suffered. Well, you know, let me say that I'm familiar with a situation in which actually got my attention going on this area, how um, how we can educate the public on something. And it doesn't. this doesn't only affect big corporations and big government and big business, whatever. It affects little guys like us. And I consider myself one of those little guys that – that uh, are on the net, and we we don't even know that there's uh, predators out there. There's uh, bad people who are looking to to uh, use my identity, and so it can happen to literally, in a case I'm familiar with, someone who doesn't have a lot of money, uh, very modest means, and holy mackerel, uh, this poor person found out got a message from a governmental agency saying, okay, now you can pay your uh, $30,000 loan. She said, what $30,000 loan? And uh, so doing some tracking, she found out that somebody had applied for a loan from a federal agency, gotten it, and moved that money, not to her, obviously, because she didn't know anything, anything about it, moved it through a bank, opened a bank account, uh, using her identification, the money went into the bank, and literally the uh, 15 minutes later it went out again uh, and has never to be seen. And But the government is saying to her, this person, hey, we want our $30,000. And this, is, this was uh, a, a matter that uh, eventually was resolved uh, favorably, but not until a lot of pain and agony uh, was... Uh, uh, was endured by this poor person. Absolutely, you're you're right. Um, we're all vulnerable. In fact, uh, I know prosecutors that have had their identity stolen. Uh, no one is safe from this. Uh, and unfortunately, John, what we also see is that you know, 20, 30 years ago, if you were a victim of a crime, it was, you know, typically it was more local in nature, right? It's somebody in your area that has uh, stolen your car or they broke into your house and stole your items. And that's not the case anymore. I mean, if you think about it, when we, we put all this information on the internet, we make it available, literally everyone in the world now that has a computer and an, and an internet connection uh, can be a criminal offender if they so choose. And so we are now exposed, all of us, whether you're an individual with uh, uh, with, with, with just a little bit of money or a huge multinational corporation, we are all potential victims, and there are potential criminal actors throughout the world who would love to get their hands on our money. You use a, a, a word uh, or phrase called the dark net. What is that? Well, it's a place on the Internet that I don't recommend anyone visit. Uh, there's no good reason for you to be there, uh, but it's uh, it, it's a part of the internet. It's accessible uh, through special browsers, um, and there's a lot of criminal activity that that takes place and is facilitated um, on the internet, where or most of us have never ventured. Uh, and so there are opportunities for people to hide their locations, their identities when they're on the internet, and to communicate with other people and uh, share information. Uh, they can solicit services like hacking services, or they can uh, solicit from developers, software developers, the ability to use their software to hack into uh, your email accounts or uh, into a business. Um, and so there's all sorts of nefarious activity that happens uh, on what, what we call the dark web. You used another word, uh, apps, and I think it probably everybody um below my age, is quite familiar with apps and uses a lot of them. But what are they? Yeah, well, you know, back in the day, we just called it software, right? I mean, this is uh, something that you put on your computer or nowadays really mostly on your mobile phones, uh, applications uh, that we download and use uh, to do various things, including uh, to communicate uh, with others or send data over the Internet using our, our mobile phones. How are apps 
um, if they are, a problem for security? Well, there are a couple of ways that uh, people are at risk by using apps. First, you have to make sure that you know what you're downloading onto your phone. Uh, just because someone has created an app uh, that you can download to your device doesn't mean it's safe, right? So you really should only be putting apps on your phone from trusted sources. Uh, because if you uh, download an app to your phone that, uh, that has a, a criminal actor behind it, uh, they can exploit that uh, window that you've created for them on your device. And that app can share information. It can send data that resides on your phone uh, to them through the internet. Uh, they can monitor what you're doing. They can collect that data. They can use it uh, and, uh, and then commit other crimes using that information location information, personal information. In some cases, people have had their, their personal photographs um, exploited. And so you have to be really careful about what apps you use and how you use them and make sure you understand the settings on those apps uh, with respect to uh, sharing data from your phone and your location information and that type of thing. Well, you know, you mentioned photographs and that leads me to, to say, I see a lot of famous people on the computer, on the Internet, and they're not always in the best uh, light in just in news stories. I hear about, oh, somebody had a, had a, uh, a picture photoshopped and then gone around the, the net. Does that happen much? Well, fortunately, we uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Grand Rapids don't see much of that. But from time to time, you do, you do hear about uh, a celebrity who's had their account hacked and they've had their, their photographs or other sensitive information um, pushed out onto the internet. And, uh, you know, it's a real shame. I mean, it's a, it's a serious invasion of people's privacy. And, um, and that's why you have to be really careful with what you do. You know, the photographs that you take um, and uploading information like photographs uh, and text messages into cloud services where anyone in the world could potentially hack in and gain access and read those messages and look at your photos. You have to be very careful about the information that you share. You know, a lot of people are, are really concerned about um, how much information the government has about you. And that's fair. I mean, that's uh, absolutely privacy is important in this country. Um, but think about the amount of information that a lot of people share willingly, not to the government, but, you know, to social media companies. Uh, their names, their date of birth, but where they live, uh, their occupation, where they eat, where they shop, what they buy, uh, what they look at without buying. I mean, there is, there's a ton of data that people uh, voluntarily share, and in some cases, they don't realize it. They unwittingly share a lot of this information, but there's a ton of data out there about you. Um, if you're using the internet a lot and you're providing a lot of personal information, uh, all of that is is ripe for the stealing. You know, it, it it's almost enough to make you go into bed, pull up the covers over your head, and suck your thumb, because it's <laughs> you you begin to wonder: Is there anything that I do, or I, I mean, does does the does everybody in the world know uh, that I go onto a uh, a website and and uh, look to shop for a book? or a movie or something like that? Well, I wouldn't say everyone in the world knows that, but you know, there are probably a lot of companies that, that do have some anonymized data. Uh, they may not have your name associated with the websites you visit and the products that you research and the things that you buy, but a lot of that data is available uh, for companies and otherwise, and other uh, uh, criminal actors to try to, to hack into and exploit. Um, and so it's a, that's, it's a double-edged sword, John. I mean, the Internet gives us wonderful opportunities to communicate with people and to explore the world and to learn new things. Unfortunately, there is, there is some risk associated with that. So I don't recommend that you stop using the Internet, but just be mindful about how you use it, what information that you share and what information that uh, potentially could be exploited and, and hacked. You know, there are, there are really, uh, I can't remember who said this, it might have been an FBI director, um, but there are people that uh, know their identity's been stolen and the people that don't think their identity's been stolen, uh, but, it, but it's out there, right? And so we talked about the dark web and the fact that, you know, for the right money, 
uh, a lot of our personal information has been collected either by a foreign state actor or by hackers uh, from, uh, from data breaches. And there is just a ton of information about us that's available out there if somebody is looking for it in the right places. Well, that uh, has been a sobering 15 minutes, but we're going to take a break right now. We're talking to Chris O'Connor, Assistant United States Attorney for the Western District of Michigan. We're talking about this wide world that are, that's light and also dark of the Internet and computers and webs and websites and all this sort of thing. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about the areas where we have to be careful, and then we're going to talk about solutions. But we're going to take a break right now. This is John Smetanka on With Respect, and we'll be right back. back on With Respect with Chris O'Connor as our guest. He is an assistant United States attorney for the Western District of Michigan and, and uh, specializes in dealing with uh, high-tech crimes, internet, cell phone-based uh, crimes where people are trying to rip one another off. off. Um, this is John Smetanka. So now, Chris, when we broke, we, t- we talked about Oh, places to stay away from. You don't want to go on the dark net. It, it, it's just a, it's an area that uh, is fraught with uh, bad actors and people that uh, are, might do you a lot of harm. But also we talked about, oh, scams where people can steal your identity and they can find your birth date and then somebody uh, ends up uh, allegedly owing a bunch of money or whatever. Uh, or has their their personal data stolen? Their their life, their uh, their emails, their the content of their communications, their photographs, whatever it is. And so this theft uh, can be, you know, simply embarrassing, or it can be very expensive. You know, people can lose a lot of money, um, and uh, certainly a lot of trouble and time and clarifying and straightening things out. So it's a big area. But I want to I ask uh, about some of the ways, specific ways, that people um, might have things stolen. And I'm going to start off with, I use email. Oh, my God, I use email. I use texts. I use communication, the Internet, to communicate uh, for my business, my practice of law, for my my personal life, my friends, my, my students when I teach, and so on. But emails, every so often I get an email that's just weird. It doesn't look just right. It's an ad, but the, even the, the logo of the company doesn't. that's allegedly uh, going to offer me some kind of a, a special deal that doesn't quite look right. Um, what about those? Do you know some? Do you have cases where that happens? Absolutely. I mean, that is one of the fastest ways that's, that a criminal actor can get inside of your mobile phone or inside of your computer and start doing damage. And so one of the things that we are seeing uh, increasing lately are, are phishing campaigns where uh, criminals will send out emails, and they send out thousands and thousands of these emails um, and every day. And they're hoping that just one person is tricked and thinks that it's legitimate and clicks on a link inside of that email. And what happens is if you click on that bad link, it sends you to a website that will automatically, in most cases, and without you realizing it, you'll start receiving uh, malware 
onto your device. Malware, so, malware. Oh, 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 malware. There's another term. Yeah, What's that? it's bad, bad software. This is code that hackers have created to plant into your electronic device that will allow them to maintain uh, a permanent door into your device so they can go inside and see all of your files, your information. In some cases, they can see exactly what keys you're typing, a keylogger program. So as you're typing on your computer, this hacker could see what you're typing in real time. And so what it is, is it's simply software code that goes onto your device that gives them access to see what you have on your, on your files and what you're doing. How do I and, recognize and, one of these? Well, you have to be careful because they're really getting very good. I mean, it, in some cases, as you mentioned, it's, it's obvious right when you look at it. There are a lot of spelling errors. There are grammatical errors. The logo doesn't seem quite right. The colors are not what you're used to seeing from your favorite retailers. Um, you know, that should raise red flags. You should not be clicking on any links in any email that looks suspicious. You know, another thing that, that we're seeing uh, increasing lately are these emails that tell you, congratulations, you know, you've won a gift card or click here and fill out this survey uh, and you'll get a hundred dollar gift card to your favorite retailer. You know, and sometimes, uh, you know, if you're getting emails from a company that you have not done business with in the past, let's say you've never shopped at a Home Depot um, and Home Depot sends you an email or it looks like it's from Home Depot and they're telling you, we'd like to have you fill out this survey of your recent shopping experience. Well, if you've never shopped at Home Depot, you shouldn't be clicking on any link to provide a survey response because clicking on that link could send you to uh, to a website that will download the code, which then gives the criminals access to your information. So you have to be really, really careful. If it looks too good to be true, you know, these free gift cards, free opportunities, be very cautious, you know. And the problem, John, is that there are legitimate email messages. There are some opportunities that, that are legitimate. It's not, uh, not a fraudulent email. And so it makes it very difficult, right? You have to... You have to be very careful, and, and my suggestion is if you have any doubt in your mind, don't click on it. Don't do it. If you think there's an opportunity available to you through a company, go to their website, type their address in, and go directly there. You know, it's, it's similar to the advice that we've heard for many years. If a business calls you at home claiming to be a business or claiming to be the government, you know, if someone calls your house and claims to be from the IRS and they need your information from you, to do something, that is a huge red flag, right? You should never provide your personal information, your bank account information, your social security number, anything like that, that can identify you or get access into one of your accounts to somebody who has called you. You should always do the calling and you verify that you're calling the real IRS or you're calling the real business using the phone number that you know um, that's very similar in terms of these emails that we're getting. Don't click on those emails if you have any suspicion about whether or not it's real. Well, there, there are other different kinds of... I remember 25 years ago, I started in the practice of law, and one day, uh, as in the private practice of law, so one day, a um, lady called me up and said, um, I've got, I need your help because I need to transfer... Uh, some money to help a poor person over in Africa. And I said, well, that's nice. And you said, this person is uh, desperate. They need help. And, I'm, and I've got some funds, and I'm going to help them, but I, I need your help. So I asked him, well, what is it? And some person who had written an email to this, uh, the person who was calling me uh, and uh, had uh, received an email from someone in Nigeria. And I thought, well, let's wait a minute. Wait a minute. I just saw a couple of these things from Nigeria the other day. So I said, "Well, ma'am, I think you better be careful on this." Um, but why don't you send that letter to me that you received, and we'll we'll start to figure out if it's uh, how to help this person. Well, of course, it was in those days. It was uh, many of the scams were coming from Nigeria, and it became a joke uh, in in the practice of law and in law enforcement. Because I remember calling up the FBI and said, "Say." Um, I've gotten two or three of these things which purport to be from some 
um, widow or orphan or cause uh, in uh, Africa or Asia or someplace and please send money. You know, and the, the agent I talked to was uh, somebody I had worked with before. He said, John, John, if we had a dime for every Nigerian uh, internet scam, I would be a millionaire. It's just, this is a big thing. John, it doesn't make any difference. I mean, the, the volume is too great for us to even begin to investigate every one of these. So <clears throat> I'm now going to turn with that intro into, I think that I have received uh, or I'm a part of a scam or somebody who's scamming me or wants to scam me um, or worse than that, wants to take over my business. It's, how do I, what do we deal with it? You use the word ransomware. What is ransomware and, and how do I avoid it or what do I do? Sure. So ransomware is simply a, another form of cybercrime that they often get access to your device, whether it's your uh, computer, a business or a home computer or, or your mobile device. Um, and they often get in through these, uh, these bad emails, uh, the bad links that someone clicks on, um, or, uh, you know, there, there are other ways that people can hack into your devices through the internet. And what they do is instead of installing some code that allows them to watch you type on the keyboard or, uh, allows them to sort of, you know, monitor the files on your system, it actually allows them to go in and implant some code into your device that will effectively lock you out of all of your files. Um, it, it installs what we call an encryption uh, on your device. And once that happens and they have launched this ransomware, uh, you do not have access. Uh, in some cases, you still can see your computer, but you can't access any of your individual files. They're all locked down and encrypted. In some cases, they totally disable the computer except for a screen that uh, your screen will show a message from these ransomware hackers and the ransomware screen will say, you know, you're, you've been uh, locked, your documents, your photos, your important files are all encrypted. And the only way that you're going to get this material back that you need to run your business or to just live your life, because we do so much with our, our computers these days is that you have to pay us money. And if you pay us a certain amount of money, in a certain amount of time, usually it's a fairly short deadline because they want to put pressure on you. Um, the only way that you will get access to your computer or your files is through what they call this decryption program, the, the keys, the keys to unlock your device. And the only way to get that key, they tell you, is to pay in, these days in Bitcoin, in what we call cryptocurrency, a certain amount of money. It could be several thousand dollars. And if you don't pay that money, they're telling you that all of your files will be either destroyed or in some cases, what we're seeing is they're, they're warning you that they will actually upload your files and put them on the Internet for the rest of the world to see all of your private information. And for a business that has a lot of secrets, trade secrets and valuable information about the clients, customers, um, their assets, uh, or just, you know, an individual who has a lot of personal information. Nobody wants that information to be put up on the internet for the world to see. And so they create this dilemma for you. Um, and, and, you know, what we see too sometimes is they warn you that if you don't pay within a certain amount of time, then the ransom goes up. They'll increase their demand. And so they're hoping that you are scared and desperate and willing to pay the money. And, you know, a lot of people are willing to pay money to get themselves out of this problem. And that just fuels more ransomware attacks. And so the more successful they are, the more money that they get, the, the more of this ransomware will occur because it's an easy way to get money. It doesn't cost them a whole lot of money to get. Now, where are the people, the, the human beings that are doing this? Where, where do they come from? Are they, are they uh, your next door neighbors <clears throat> or are they someplace else? Well, they're all over the world, John. I mean, what we are finding is that uh, this sort of activity is happening um, all over the world, including in countries where you know the United States government does not have 
such a great relationship with, and in some cases, no relationship. So, you know, this could be somebody in, in North Korea. Um, you know, it could be somebody from, from another country uh, that, uh, you know, we have strained diplomatic relations with, or we don't have cooperation um, with law enforcement in those countries. And so this is not, this is the, the, the big attacks, the ones that are going after our nation's critical infrastructure, uh, our largest companies, our banks, financial institutions. You know, unfortunately, a lot of that is coming from actors overseas. And it's a it's a national security issue as well as a, a fraud issue. Oh, boy, I'm getting more and more nervous. I'm going to take a break right now to take a, de- a deep breath. Uh, this is John Smetanka on With Respect, and we're talking to <clears throat> Chris O'Connor, who is an assistant United States attorney for the Western District of Michigan. We're talking about an area which touches all of our lives, which is the use and abuse of the Internet. We'll be right back. now back on with respect with Chris O'Connor, who is an assistant United States attorney for the Western District of Michigan, especially concentrating in his practice on internet crimes, financial crimes uh, for the federal government in Western Michigan. But uh, this is something which is a universal problem, as we will uh, talk about in just a minute. This is John Smetanka. So, Chris... You know, I'm I'm in uh, I'm in Western Michigan. I live in the woods of West Michigan. I'm not bothering anybody. They don't bother me. Am I immune from uh, from this sort of ransomware or is these frauds? Nope. Nobody nobody is immune, John. If you are connected to the internet, no matter where you are, you you have some vulnerability. And so, the key is to protect yourself and educate yourself to make sure that you can do everything you can to avoid being a victim uh, of these crimes. And I will say, you know, one important message that I need to get out to everybody is that um, there are a lot of unwitting participants uh, in, in a lot of what we've been talking about. And we call those in, in our business, we call them money mules. And uh, sometimes they're what we call witting money mules, people that know that they're participating in a fraud and they're helping it because they're getting a cut of the money. But in a lot of cases, we also see uh, unwitting money mules, uh, folks that have fallen victim to a separate scheme, a separate fraud uh, that they don't realize that they're participating in. And they're using you as a conduit to, for example, potentially move a ransomware payment. And so there are a couple of things that we that we see that people need to be aware of. The first is what we call a romance scam. And unfortunately, this is a significant problem. Uh, in you know our our community, when we see it happening a lot with elderly victims, and so it's very very sad, John. You see someone who has lost a, a spouse, uh, who's who's lonely, um, and they're on the internet, and they go on a dating site or they go on a meet uh, you know meet people website, and unfortunately, there are a lot of criminal actors that are hiding out there posing as somebody like you, somebody who will pay attention to you. And, uh, and it's really incredible. And sometimes we see these actors will, will groom you for a period of months sometimes uh, to reassure you that, A, they're real and they, they are who they say they are. Um, but then they eventually talk you into sending them money. And they can talk you into sending your own money. And so you can be a direct victim of that romance scam. And that's, you know, often a very sad story themselves. They have a serious medical issue or they need to help, you know, someone in another country who's desperate uh, for, for aid. And there are a, a really 
sadly, a shocking number of people that have turned over a lot of their life savings to people they've never even met in person, but who are so good at talking you into sending your money that it works. And in some cases, what they'll do is they'll trick you into thinking that you're helping them with their money or their business. And so as part of a romance scam, they could then pivot and do what we call uh, sort of a work at home scheme. And they tell you, hey, I've got this business and you know, I need help setting up a bank account. Um, and they'll have all kinds of excuses as to why they can't do it. They're out of the country or they, they have some other obstacle and they need you to open up a bank account or they need you to accept into your personal bank account money that is wired into the account. And then what they tell you to do is to turn around and send that money to them, either to wire it to another bank account that they control or to convert that money into Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency and essentially use you as a money launderer. You're one hop on the way of many hops where this money moves repeatedly so they can try to hide the fact that it's um, criminally obtained funds and they make it as hard as they can for law enforcement to trace that money and try to seize it from them if we, if we find it. And so people need to be very, very careful out there. If there's somebody that you have not met in person and they're telling you to send them money or to process money for them, the red flag should be up. Uh, that is very, very, very dangerous. And unfortunately, all too common. In a lot of our uh, area banks and credit unions, they're aware of this. And, uh, and if they see that activity in the account, they might tell the account holder, the, the customer, hey, we think this might be a scam. And, and they do try to warn their customers. And, you know, shockingly, John, sometimes customers just go ahead and do it anyway. Because I know. they don't believe it. I know. I, I, can, I could uh, tell you cases where that's happened. Very sophisticated people uh, who got, for whatever reason, have gotten hooked into one of these. And uh, it's, it's just, uh, it's very sad. And, and once you get, once they get their hooks into you, it is very difficult to take them out. It's just very difficult. It is. It's very difficult. And, you know, from the law enforcement perspective, we work very hard every day to try to trace that money down and to try to find where it's residing. And, and, and if it's a place where we can uh, have a judge issue a warrant to seize those funds to try to return them to the victim, we will do that. But unfortunately, in far too many of these cases, by the time law enforcement finds out what happened, that money is long gone. It has moved to a foreign country where we don't have the ability to seize those funds, or it's moved. It's been moved into uh, a cryptocurrency wallet. Uh, we don't have the ability to seize the funds from that wallet. Um, and so the, the, uh, the sad part of this story is not only are they victims, uh, and they're taken advantage of, but you know, in in far too many cases, we can't get the money back, even if we see where it went. All right, this we're now coming down to the one topic which is so front and center today, and that is somebody t has taken control of my business computer or my personal computer, and they want money. Otherwise. Uh, they're going to uh, destroy it. They're going to destroy me. They're going to, I want ransom. So what is the right thing for me to do? And, and I know there is all different kinds of uh, things that go through your mind. You know, how, how I'm, I'm scared. I'm losing my business or I lose my personal life or whatever it is. What do I do? Can I go to you guys? Well, that's, that's a very good question, John, and we get calls um, occasionally from both the public and from attorneys uh, who have clients call, and they ask, what do we do? And it's a very difficult question to answer because not everyone's situation is the same. Uh, I will tell you that the Department of Justice uh, and the FBI's position is that you do not pay the ransom. If your computer has been, has been hacked and, and encrypted from ransomware, uh, we don't encourage that you pay it. Uh, there are several reasons for that. First, <clears throat> uh, there's no guarantee that if you pay the money that they'll actually release your system function or your files. You know, there are some examples of ransomware uh, where they've taken the money and run. 
and they don't provide you with that decryption key to get access to your files. So that's just wasted money. You're no better off. Uh, secondly, there's no guarantee, John, if you pay the money, uh, and, now, and now that they know that you have money and you're willing to pay it, there's no guarantee they won't come back to you with a second ask, a second ransom demand, mm-hmm. right? If you yeah. paid once, you might, you might pay twice. And so don't think that you might be getting off just because you sent them, you know, a couple of hundred dollars that that's going to be the end of the game. They may be coming back to you a second time saying, well, now send us a thousand dollars. And so you can be uh, digging yourself into a hole and sending uh, a lot more money to these bad actors. You know, the other point that we try to, to make is that, and I mentioned this a few minutes ago, when you pay that ransom, you're financing their ability to keep running these attacks. It encourages new attacks and not just of the criminals that, that put the ransomware on your device, but when other criminal actors see how successful others have been and how much money they've received from this criminal activity, they join in the criminal activity. So it sort of breeds new criminals into this line of work. And we certainly don't want to do that. We have enough ransomware out there already as it is. We don't need more people getting into the business. And, uh, you know, finally, don't assume that law enforcement will be able to help you. You know, I know that um, we're very proud. The department is very proud of uh, the seizure of a lot of the ransom that was paid in the Colonial Pipeline case uh, earlier this year. And, uh, you know, they were able to recover millions of dollars um, in, 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 that had moved many, many times uh, through cryptocurrency wallets. But, you know, that's difficult to do. And there's no guarantee that when you call us, we'll be able to get that ransom payment back. So don't assume because it's we've been successful before uh, that we'll be successful again. There's certainly no guarantees in this world. And so, you know, it's a very difficult situation that people find themselves in. And some do pay, right? They, they do that cost-benefit analysis. They think, well, I can get out of this. I can get my files back. Uh, you know, this is a serious problem for my company. Uh, you know, imagine a hospital getting hit with ransomware and having all of the hospital's medical files locked down. Uh, you've got critical patients throughout the hospital. You know, there, we understand there is a there is serious stress put on folks who have ransomware on their computers. And so, you know, sometimes people do find themselves in a position where they have to pay. The important thing is, um, whether you pay or not, to contact law enforcement, call the FBI, uh, call the Secret Service. Those are the two main agencies uh, that I work with right now on all forms of of cybercrime, and they have teams set up specifically to go after these criminals. And so if you don't call us, we can't try to put a stop to it. We can't try to mitigate it. And so absolutely, whether you pay or not, and this is important because a lot of people follow our advice and don't pay the ransom, call us anyway, even if you haven't paid. If your files are permanently locked, uh, you should still call law enforcement because uh, we are probably tracking that particular variant of the ransomware and we need to develop the evidence. And your case may help us uh, make progress against you know, who's behind this. And even if you're not, financially a victim, you're still a victim, right? And you need to report that. And we'll do everything we can to try to help. Well, I've got to tell you that this has been an interesting uh, interesting discussion, Chris. I uh, am now immediately going to go out and uh, turn off my, my telephone and pull the plug on my internet, and I'm going to go back into my bed. And what I said before is to pull the covers over my head, suck my thumb, and pray <laughs> that, that, that I, they don't come after me there. But anyway, well, you know, that doesn't sound like much fun. And, well, see that that interestingly enough, that is part of the problem. Uh, that the internet provides so many things for us that are positive, and 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 in some cases, uh, addictive. You know, you, my my computer solitaire program. When I'm waiting for a telephone call to come in, I end up uh, playing computer solitaire. Well, that's it's fine, but I could be doing something else with my time, more productive. But the point here is that what we're dealing with is human behavior. And as you know, and you've been working in this area for so many years, and I have as well, 
uh, when I was a, a prosecutor, I would, and I would see, before the Internet came around, we would see all different kinds of bad behavior by people who just took advantage of one another. But, you know, this should not overweigh the good because not everybody is a crook and not every person that you deal with on the Internet, your friends, your family, and, and whatnot, are, are evil or out to get you. Uh, it's, it's just a risk that we take for being humans, and we just have to have to just take our risks at some point that we can not gonna, we're not going to go into that under my covers and go to sleep. That's so true, John. I mean, we, we buy cars that could be stolen. We, we buy homes that could be broken into. Uh, nothing in life is risk-free. The yeah. issue is how do we mitigate that risk? What steps can we take to protect ourselves? Uh, we need to constantly be on the lookout and educate ourselves about this evolving technology, make sure we understand it, and you know, do the best we can to try to prevent being a, a victim of crime. Unfortunately, Chris, we're out of time. This has been great talking to you. I'm I'm ha- so happy you came on to uh, uh, scare the de- the uh, the devil out of us, and also to give us some hope that there is a there's a window. All right, this is John Smetanka run with respect. Remember, wherever on every Sunday and Thursday, and when you uh, are waiting for us to come on, remember that our mantra. During the week is, if you show respect to other people, they will show respect to you.